Hello, Rebecca Adil here. Just another another really quick message just to say a huge thank you for all the support so far with the latest season. It's been really heartwarming to see all of your lovely comments. So thank you for that. And a reminder to please leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts if you are able to. It really does help. Thank you. Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider history. I'm Rebecca Adil and I'll be your guide. Today's episode, Matter Harry. It's just before dawn on the 15th of October 1917. A 41-year-old woman is woken in her cell at San Lazar Prison. She readies herself and is escorted to a waiting automobile before being driven to a nearby barracks. A firing squad of 12 waits for her. She's positioned in front of the officers. On the signal, they raise their rifles and fire. This is the end of Mata Harry. Joining me today to explore Mata Harry's story is Dr. Kate Lister, sex historian, host of Betwixt the Sheets podcast, owner of the hugely popular Whores of Yours social media account and author of Harlots, Whores and Hackabouts, A History of Sex for Sale. So, Kate, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. It's so exciting to have you on Killing Time and you're here to talk about, drumroll, Matahari, the famous courtesan spy espionage femme fatale. (laughs) She does definitely seem to be a bit of a a femme fatale. But before we get to that, could you give us some kind of background here? Where does she fit into the history of the early 20th century? So Matahari made her name in Paris. Sometimes she said she was from the Middle East. Sometimes she said she had Javanese heritage. Sometimes she said she was a Jewish princess. She was Dutch. She was absolutely Dutch. And her parents were Dutch and her grandparents were Dutch. Dutch, 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 Dutch. There's nothing exotic at all. And she was actually born Margarita Zeller. And she was born in um, a a small city that's about 100 miles northeast of Amsterdam. And it was a pretty standard Dutch town. Like, there's lots of canals. And that's where she was born. And she was the oldest of, I think she had four younger siblings. Her dad was a hat merchant. He made hats. And he actually made quite a lot of money. He actually did pretty well. Enough to really spoil his children. And by all accounts, he was a fantastic teller of stories as well what we might say today is a bullshit artist like he would just lie all the time and really exaggerate things but then he lost all his money and he abandoned the family and then margarita's mum died as well so she has this really quite affluent start to life you're pretty standard dutch upper middle class background and then it all goes horribly wrong and she sort of stays with extended relatives they're not really sure what to do with her she then gets packed off to what's effectively a boarding school by the age of 17 and then one of her first scandals hits and this is often packaged as she got thrown out for having an affair with the headmaster of the school right which is like today we wouldn't say that we would not say that today we'd be like she was being sexually abused by the headmaster of the school or like at least as a serious power dynamic. Anyway, she got thrown out. The headmaster was allowed to keep his job. So the next thing that she decided to want to do was get married. And so she got married to a, he was, a, his family was from Scotland, but he was serving in the Dutch Indian army. Uh, his name was John McLeod. And they went over to what is now Indonesia 
the Dutch India and that was where she learnt about some of the the culture and she learnt some of the the Indonesian dances and Javanese customs and blah 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 they have children the marriage is terrible violent awful he's an alcoholic he's womanizing he gives a syphilis the children are born with syphilis it's really bad it's like bad 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 there's so much syphilis syphilis is still around today but like it's got that sort of like like, what pirate nonsense is this sort of there about it? And even if you get it, it's a course of antibiotics. I don't think we quite appreciate what it, what it will do if it's untreated. It's really awful. And her children are born with, with syphilis. She has a boy and a girl. The little boy dies age two from mercury poisoning. They've um, given him, which was the treatment for syphilis. And I've never known if that does anything, actually. Like, why were people treating syphilis with mercury did it do anything well kate i will refer you to another podcast of mine called sick to death um and in in that podcast there's a very esteemed historian who actually tackles this issue of mercury treatment with syphilis and i don't want to misrepresent what he says so have a listen to the podcast yourselves listeners to check that this is right but from memory i think what he argues is that it did actually work to either alleviate some of the symptoms or at least mask them. And it was like the go-to... So I've often wondered that. Like It must have done something, but I don't know what it did. Anyway, it killed this little boy, so that was stupid. Awful. The marriage falls apart. They eventually get divorced. Margarita abandons her child, or we'll frame that a bit more generously, couldn't support her child on her own, and so left it with her ex-husband, who was a violent drunk, and then went to Paris to try and make a name for herself. She ended up uh, posing for artists. Then she took to the stage. And what's that? Is that, that film Sweet Charity where it's like, you've got to have a gimmick. Or is that Gypsy Rosalie where they're in the dressing room and it's like, you got to have a gimmick. To, uh, you know, to like make your name on the stage. Well, her gimmick was that she was an exotic Javanese princess from a mysterious island somewhere and she did all these sensual veil dances and it was a striptease was what it was that's how she ended up on the stage and she became this absolute overnight sensation but they'd never seen anything like this before people were attracted to the exoticism of it the sensuality of it by all accounts she was quite a shit dancer like she'd never had any training she just seen like some people in indonesia doing dances and clearly thought oh, i'll have a crack at that but she also was a courtesan which is a very kind of slippery term of like what is that she dated very very wealthy powerful men and lots of them and they would give her money and clothes and apartments and she was quite brazen about this and unashamed she would different lovers pretty much every day of the week and that's how she sustained herself so she became emblematic of paris in the belle epoque period she was a free spirit she was exotic she was liberated a sensual dancer she all these things I just find it so interesting because how do you how do you get from where she started to moving to Paris and her thinking I know I want to be an exotic dancer like what was her end game here I think one of the things that you, we've kind of got to think is like well what are your options as as a woman at this time and things were changing for women at this time but it was still quite shit but it's like what were you going to do so she's been forced into a position where she has to get divorced because her husband is beating her we have evidence for that letters they wrote at the time he's given her syphilis one of her babies has died she has to get divorced the divorce courts weren't nice to women so she can't 
take her daughter. She tries to take her daughter and raise her on her own, but it's hard enough now for single mums with welfare state, with a bit more sympathy, with with a bit more understanding. Never mind at the turn of the 20th century. So then she's put in a position of like, well, I'm going to have to leave my child. And now she's a divorced woman who's abandoned her children with no family to turn to, with no husband to turn to, with a lot of stigma. What are you going to do? Where, where are you? Like, how are you going to make your money? You are shamed enough. You, you could get married again, but that's quite a lot of work and difficult if you've got a kind of a fallen woman thing going on. So she did what a lot of people did. She went to Paris to try and make her name. You know, like you go to London. I'm going to go to the big city. At the time, Paris was this big cultural, still is, but like this buzzing place of like artists and bohemian culture and, and you know, it was the time of Toulouse-Lautrec and the Moulin Rouge had just opened and it was, you know, Paris sexy time. And she originally rode horses under the fake name Lady, Lady McLeod. She tried to do that and then no one was really buying it. She was an artist's model. But again, not making too much money. But it was at that point that someone suggested she tried dancing. And it, this was the period of, of the Moulin Rouge and the Folie Bergeres. And there was... You could make a lot of money doing that very quick. I mean, even if you were a crap dancer, even if you only did it for a bit, there's a lot of money to be made. And she was pretty much penniless at the time. Yeah, there was other options. Yeah, there were, there probably she could have joined a nunnery. She could have got married. She could have gone to work in a biscuit factory or a matchstick factory or something and... But she she wanted nice things out of life. And she, they said, if you take your clothes off on this stage, we'll give you quite a lot of money. I often think that when, when we look at these people, like people that have risen, risen above um, normalcy, um, have led interesting lives, that we, the temptation is to think, oh, there must have been some kind of plan. But actually, we know just from life ourselves that things can often just happen. I mean... We're doing a podcast right now. Who would have thought that podcasts would have been so big 10, 15 years ago? But they are. They just, it just happened. Think, things happen externally. Like you think you've got a plan. You think I'm going to do this. I'm going to, and she did have a plan. She had a plan. I'm going to marry this man in the military. He was descended from aristocracy. I'm going to have the babies. I'm going to be a military wife. That was her plan. And it wasn't her fault that he gave her syphilis and it wasn't her fault he was an alcoholic and a drunk and beat her up. And circumstances change stuff, didn't it? And you adapt. So, yes, yeah, so it wasn't a plan. OK, so she's she's doing this dance act. Um, she's leaning into this Orientalism that we see a lot of during the beginning part of the century, during this period, which is a whole other podcast episode. You'd never get it past the senses today. Oh, she takes the name Matahari as well, which uh, in the Malaysian language means the eye of the day or like day dawn, daybreak. So it's it's again kind of, oh, it's so exotic. <laughs> it's so funny to think that, you know, she was doing this this act and actually getting away with it. I mean, whereas if she was to do it today, if there was a Matahari today, within minutes, um, she would be found out. We'd be like, no, that's not, that's not quite what it seems. No, I mean, she... She was a very cultured and intelligent woman. She could speak German, she could speak um, French, she could speak Dutch, she could speak Malaysian. She'd learned that in Indonesia while she was out there. She was very good at cultivating this image and the kind of the mystery that surrounds her. And she would trade in nonsense stories. You know, she was a princess, she was a Javanese princess. She she learned this dance from the temples of, of Rajasthan. And like, but like in... The 19, at the turn of the 20th century, who's going to check that? You can't. So she's just very good at spinning it. 
So she's doing all this stuff and then somehow she gets caught up in spying or espionage. I'm assuming that's got something to do with these men that she was seeing, these elite men. But could could you tell me about that? Yeah, so it's not really clear today if she's guilty. It's not. I think what we could probably say is that she's not entirely innocent but I don't think the myth that surrounded Mata Heron certainly the story that was told at the time was that she was this awful devil woman this femme fatale and she was responsible for the death of 40,000 French soldiers and blah 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 and she wasn't she was a woman who had a poor grasp on the politics of war she was a woman who didn't understand the situation that she was in and she liked nice stuff so what happens is that before the outbreak of of the of world war one she's in like her zenith and she dances throughout her 20s and her 30s and then around about the age of 38 she does something that she's never ever ever done before and she falls head over heels in love in love with a very handsome russian soldier called captain vadim maslov who was a russian pilot fighting for the french 23 years old and she was 38 she had such a weakness for men in uniform she really did like she just couldn't help herself so she falls in love with him we're going to get married, it, it, we're going to live forever and ever and ever, and it's going to be amazing. And he he gets shot down and hospitalised somewhere on, near the front lines, and then she she wants to go and see him, and she needs permission to do it. And that's how she gets involved with the, the French authorities. Now, it's very murky as to what happened, because she also travelled... She was what was known at the time as an international woman, which sounds a bit like, oh, that's quite sexy, I'd like to be one of them. But it at the time, it wasn't a good... Thing that was like ah oh, okay so she traveled she was because she had a dutch passport she could travel all over the place because it was neutral she went to germany a lot and she had a lot of very very wealthy lovers in germany including relatives of the kaiser um i think it was his son-in-law it was the the crown prince Wilhelm, uh, eldest son of kaiser Wilhelm ii he was on her roster right before the war she's having a great time and then the war breaks out and now oh fuck like, she's shagging people from all different sides. Oh, dear. And she's kind of neutral. So that immediately puts her in a position of, like, she's regarded with suspicion. And then what happens as well during the First World War is social attitudes change dramatically. And whereas once she was seen as this kind of bon vivant, bohemian, like, sensual woman, now she's seen as kind of, like, wanton, corrupting, slutty, like, can't-be-trusted, nasty piece of work. And she hasn't quite grasped that the morals are changing or the level of paranoia that's that's emerging. So she, at the outbreak of war, she's in Germany. She's about to start a, a show, a big comeback show. It gets cancelled and she gets arrested because all foreign nationals are being arrested. And they seize all of her money, they seize her jewels and they seize her fur and she's really, really, really pissed off. And it was about this time that one of her lovers offers her, I think it's like 20,000 Deutschmarks to spy for Germany. And she takes the money but doesn't spy. She takes the money as compensation for, well, you've taken all of my clothes, I'm leaving. So that mistake, number one. Uh, and it was a German guy called uh, Keller, who was a German military attaché, very, very, very important. And then she goes, she travels around a lot, she gets to England and then we arrest her because we're really suspicious of her, but we're not quite sure what to do. Then she goes to France and she speaks to, this is one of the villains of the piece, Georges Ladoux, who is the French head of French anti-espionage. And he knows who she is and he knows how connected she is. 
And she says that she can extract information from high-ranking German officials if he'll give her a million francs. And then she doesn't have any money at this point. She's like really skinned. She is without sexy young Russian pilot. She's without her lovers. She's 38 years old at this point, which isn't old, but in dancer years, that's quite old. So she's losing work. Um, so she he agrees and she goes off on this mission. But whether or not he actually was serious about that or whether or not he was trying to trap her, we're not sure. So she's off doing this and she attempts to go to Germany to extract information from various people. She's really crap at it, Rebecca. Like, she's absolutely rubbish. Like, at one point, she's writing stuff in a letter back to France. Just a letter in, like, the French equivalent of the Royal Mail. Ah, uh, this reminds me of Afro Ben. <laughs> people that you want to be good at spying, um, you know, because of... Woohoo, feminism and all that. Um, but they're not. They're shit. No. So, she, so she's crap at spying. But she's attempting to extort secrets. And then the Germans catch on that, of what she's trying to do. And they basically stitch her up. This is one of the, the key pieces of it. And this is one of the pit, bits of information that has historians going, woohoo. So the German authorities send a coded message to their, um, their, their allies about a spy um, called Agent H21, that was the code name, with enough detail for it to be ridiculously obvious who this is. Yeah, it would it would be like if, if you said it about me, right, this is Agent H21, she's a blonde-haired sex historian who has a big Twitter account, blah, blah, blah. It's so obvious who it is, right? But here's the clincher. It was sent in a code they knew the French had already cracked. They knew the French had cracked it. Oh, okay. Right. So this is this is them attempting to get her. They're pissed off with her because they know what she's doing, attempting to uh, get money out of them, uh, information out of them, and they're basically stitching her up. And the French don't like her either because they know what she's about. So now this looks like it's confirmation that she is the spy. When she goes back to France, she's arrested and she's thrown in jail for six months and interrogated seventeen times, attempting to get information out of her and they can't get it out of her. And then she does this, She then she cracks and she tells her, the person that he's interrogating, it was a real shit called Captain Pierre Bouchardon, who hates women and whose wife he'd recently discovered had been unfaithful. So he doesn't like Matahari, doesn't like women like her, hates them. Um, and she's attempting to seduce him and be flirty and be, you know, and all these things. And, and it's all going horribly wrong. And then she confesses she had taken money from the Germans. And that, along with this intercepted, obviously staged message, that was enough. On the 24th of July, 1917, it goes to trial. Mata Harry is publicly revealed to be, in actual fact, a Dutch woman named Margarita Zeller. She's accused of spying for the enemy, which caused the deaths of thousands upon thousands of Allied soldiers. That was something else that really annoyed them at the trial. It was never going to, like, she, they'd be interrogating her. Where did that £20,000 go? And she just genuinely couldn't remember, which was... <laughs> and that you can see how, like, she was desperately trying to explain, look, I just, I just spend that much money and didn't understand that it was, like, annoying them more and more and more. And you can kind of see what was happening there. You know, it like, occasionally when you get real tone-deaf celebrities in the age of austerity and, you know spiraling cost of living saying something stupid like that like oh, yeah it was only twenty thousand pounds and that level of anger but that's what she was doing and she just didn't realize that she was really pissing people off 
and then she was painted as this awful spy who'd cost the lives of 40,000 Frenchmen. And at the time, the war was going really badly for France, really badly. And they needed a scapegoat, and she was the perfect scapegoat. She was like, she was foreign, she was promiscuous, she'd had sex with the enemy, she had admitted ish messing about. She, yeah, she was perfect. So she was sentenced to death by firing squad. It's a really tumultuous story, but I want to ask you how much the wider public knew about this. Because obviously she's dealing with the elite networks here, but were the public aware of what was happening? Yeah, this was widely reported in the press. This was She was hugely famous at the time. She was um, like Kim Kardashian kind of levels of fame, hugely famous. And the, the trial caused an absolute sensation and she was pilloried in the press. And they, they just ate it up. They couldn't get enough of it. And this was a period of what is often referred to as historians as spy fever at the time. Like the paranoia around spies was, was colossal at this time. And she just fitted everything she was sexy she was exotic she was a celebrity she was a spy it just it, it's an amazing story 100 years later isn't it so it, at the time yeah it was people following this every word was reported um the the guy Bouchardon who was interrogating her kept journals and diaries about it and he wrote at great length about her i've got some quotes that, that he wrote about her if you would like to hear some yes please so here's one of the things that he wrote about her in, in his diary. Feline, supple and artificial. Used to gambling everything and anything without scruple, without pity. Always ready to devour fortunes, leaving her ruined lovers to blow their brains out. She was a born spy. Ooh, what a nasty piece of work. He's horrible. He really is. He was. He hated her. He absolutely hated her like when you read through the notes he's making it's quite clear that he just doesn't like women at all and he was her prosecutor at a trial as well so brilliant all right well it's not looking good for her we we know what happens but could you talk us through it so she's in jail for six months and the, the, her jailers seem to take a lot of pleasure in in tormenting her really and it's also kind of testament to her her naivety about what was going on like when she was imprisoned it was like one of the roughest prisons in, in, in Paris and the first thing she did was request a bath and, and for her clothes to be brought to her and it's kind of like oh dear Mata Harry hasn't quite grasped this and so she's locked there for six months she hasn't been allowed to wash she hasn't been allowed to change her clothes she hasn't been allowed to do her makeup so her appearance is altered quite dramatically by the time her trial rolls around and I think that Bouchardon enjoyed humiliating her like that she writes in frantic letters all throughout her imprisonment begging for baths begging for clothes begging for you know something that she can use to clean herself and it's just it's all falling on deaf ears so the trial goes it's a sensation it's a stitch up as well her lawyer wasn't allowed to cross-examine the right people it was it was just it was never ever gonna go her way and it's unanimous she's guilty of treason of espionage and sentenced to death by firing squad and it's carried, the sentence is, is carried out on the 15th of October, 1917, at half past five in the morning. She is woken and taken to a, a little sort of scrub land um, a couple of miles outside of Paris. And her death, it's probably her best performance, I think. She hasn't been able to dye her hair, so it's, it's the grey hair and it's, it's dirty and it's greasy, but she's got it stuffed underneath a hat like a big hat that she's got on got gloves and she's got she managed to get a long coat and she refuses the blindfold and she refuses to be tied to the stake 
So she and there's there, the myths that surrounded her said that she was doing things like she was blowing kisses at the at the the soldiers with the rifles. Or there's one really extreme one where she took off her clothes and they were so in awe of her beauty that they couldn't shoot her at all. So none of that happened. That didn't happen. But I do have a first-hand testimony of exactly what did happen. If you would like me to read that out. No, I don't want it, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, read it, please. Okay, so this is Henry Wales. He's a British reporter and this is he was there. He saw it happen and this is what he said. She did not die as actors and moving picture stars would have us believe that people die when they are shot. She did not throw up her hands, nor did she plunge straight forward or straight back. Instead, she seemed to collapse, slowly, inertly. She settled to her knees, her head up always, and without the slightest change of expression on her face. For the fraction of a second, it seemed she tottered there, on her knees, gazing directly at those who had taken her life. Then she fell backwards, bending at the waist, with her legs doubled up beneath her. She lay prone, motionless, with her face turned towards the sky. A non-commissioned officer who accompanied a lieutenant drew his revolver from the big black holstered strap to his waist. Bending over, he placed the muzzle of the revolver almost but not quite against the left temple of the spy. He pulled the trigger and the bullet tore into the brain of the woman. And there, there was a further indignity was that nobody claimed her body. No, nobody wanted her body, so she was sent for uh, dissection at the, the Paris Medical University. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, it was just she was just sent along with the bodies of other criminals and other executed people to be dissected. And there's something really sad about that, like this body that was so celebrated and that everybody, that men paid millions to lie next to. And is now it's, nobody wanted it. Nobody came for her. Nobody, all the lovers and all the the men in her life that didn't come to help her in the end. And her 23-year-old super sexy pilot denied that they were going to get married. And she found that out during the trial and fainted away. So she was really abandoned by, by everybody. Oh, that's so sad. I feel quite sad about this. It is sad. But her death, the way she did that, she stood there, she refused the blindfold, she wouldn't be tied to the stake, and she looked them dead in the eye. And the, the soldier who was in charge of that was quoted at the time as saying, my God, this lady knows how to die. So she's the, the, all like the indignity that was heaped on her. She wasn't guilty of the charges. And if she was a spy, she was a crap spy. She was like a really bad rubbish spy. But she had been messing around with the wrong people. She was in over her head. What we do know is that she never gave either the Germans or the French any information that was ever worth anything, ever. Like, that just didn't happen. She certainly wasn't responsible. The most she gave them was gossip. I can't imagine what that must be like to be there, to know that you're innocent of these charges and then to be sentenced to death. It's quite, quite horrific. But she's since passed into sort of myth lore and uh, kind of public imagination as this femme fatale legend live forever beautiful woman seducing anything and everything and you know she's become a legend now well that was going to be my final question do you do you think we remember her correctly do we do a do we do her a disservice in the way we remember her i don't know if anybody really knows who she is because Matahari was an invention that she was all spin and stories and lies and her love life, her sex life, by the nature of it, was secretive and, you know, and she lived extravagantly. And But do we remember her correctly? The files on her were only released full, fully in um, 2017, I think. About They were still they kept back 
by the French authorities, all redacted, because they had some pretty big names in there. Like when she was arrested, one of the things that they confiscated from the hotel room was all of the calling cards of her gentleman callers. And like, there's a documentary, you can watch it on YouTube, and there's a guy who like tips it out in a museum, and it's just, there's like hundreds of these things. It's like, matter, Harry, really? I think now that we've got access to the files, I think we have a more rounded picture of her. She was certainly not the spy that was painted at the trial. She wasn't responsible for 40,000 deaths. She wasn't, she wasn't a spy general. She fell in love. She was got in over her head. And I think that now that we've kind of, there's a, a, I think there's a lot of sympathy for her now. And I think that that's, that's an important thing. But I'm not sure if, she'd, if she would actually want you to have an accurate image of her. That's not what she was about. She would, the legend, that's what she would have wanted. Margarita Zeller, or Mata Harry, quickly became a cult figure. The first film about her life appeared just three years after her death, and the most significant portrayal, that of Greta Garbo, 14 years after her death. Since then, she's appeared in books, films, musicals and songs, becoming an almost archetypal femme fatale. But what of the real woman? As Kate's mentioned, documents were only declassified in 2017, and the Matahari Foundation continues to campaign for an official exoneration from the French government. In a rather chilling epitaph, there's a crucial part of Matahari that's still missing. In 2000, archivists at the Museum of Anatomy in Paris realised that Matahari's head, which had been embalmed separate to her body, was, and remains, missing. <laughs> 